Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So I'm going to write, this is not on your notes, so we're not, we're, we're not going to get there yet, but I'm going to write three words on the board. And the first two words you guys probably recognize, the last word you may not recognize, but we're going to talk about these three things tonight. The first word I'm writing on the board is a term called eternal security. So who would want to define eternal security? What does that mean, eternal security? When we use the term eternal security, what are we saying? What is the Bible teaching? Okay, once saved, always saved, which means what? You can't eternal security. Okay, yeah. So, what, so would we agree, would we all agree that the Bible teaches that a true Christian, a true Christian cannot lose his or her salvation if they're truly saved? Would we agree with that? Okay. All right. The next word I'm going to put on here is maybe a word you've heard. This is perseverance of the saints. It's a little bit different than eternal security. What does that term mean? Perseverance of the saints. Okay, that God is going to make sure that we what? What's what's pers- that we pers- What does persevere mean? That we okay. So we can't be lost if we're truly saved, but we also have to endure to the end to be saved, right? So, hey, Jamie. So perseverance does not save us. Perseverance is proof that we were saved in the first place. Does that make sense? Okay, now I'm going to write another word up here that maybe you don't know what this word is, but it's a biblical word. The word is apostasy. Does anybody know what apostasy is? You're like, oh, I don't know. Okay, We all know what eternal security is. We all know what perseverance of the saints is. What in the world is apostasy? It's a falling away. Okay? It is not a losing of your salvation. It is a falling away from the faith that you thought you had, but you never really had. It's very important that we discuss that, okay? So is there such a thing, is there such a category as a person who professes faith in Christ, maybe even gets baptized, maybe even shows evidence of salvation, but then totally falls away? Yes, there is a category for that. It's called an apostate. And the chapter we have before us is going to introduce this whole concept of apostasy and perseverance of the saints. Must we persevere to the end to be saved? Yes. Can we lose our salvation? No. How are we going to persevere to the end? God is going to make sure we do that, but what does it look like? So... Let's just do a little bit of review and look at what we've seen so far. So we've been in two chapters in Hebrews. Chapter 1, we looked at seven attributes of Jesus and how He is the supreme sovereign ruler over the entire universe. He's the sustainer of the universe. Then in chapter 2, He begins with this warning and tells them, pay close attention that you don't drift. Okay, so here's the question. Before you fall away... Does falling away happen all at once? Where does it start? 
It starts with drifting away. Drifting, if not caught, turns into full-blown falling away. And that's what he warns us in chapter 2. Don't drift. And then he said last week, the way you don't drift is to keep your eyes on Jesus. And we looked at a couple things about last week. Jesus was our pioneer. He's our trailblazer. He's our priest. He came in the flesh and he died to satisfy God's wrath as a propitiation. Okay? So now as we turn to chapter 3, the warning is stronger. He's kind of raised the ante. It's, it's, it's no longer, hey, guys, don't drift. It's now, if you're not careful, you will fall away. So let's read chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to things that were to be spoken about later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. What's the theme of Hebrews? Remember the title? Jesus is what? Better. Jesus is better. That's our theme. Now, he's going to introduce who's the main person that's contrasted to Jesus here in chapter 3. In chapter 1, it was angels. Who is it now? Moses. So who is Israel's greatest hero? Who stands as that one figure above all figures in the nation of Israel? Moses. Now, there are other heroes, Abraham, Samuel, David, Joseph, you know, Isaiah, but the one figure who the Jews of, of this time, remember, the, what was the temptation for the Hebrew Christians? To fall back to Judaism. And who's the hero of Judaism? Moses. So what we see, in, 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 in especially in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is this about Moses. Moses was called and sent by God to deliver Israel out of slavery. Was he a deliverer? Was he called? Was he sent? Okay. Moses was also called and sent by God to bring the law to Israel. He was a preacher. When he came down off of Mount Sinai, he preached the word to the nation of Israel, the law of God. He was a preacher. Moses was also called and sent by God to pray for and represent Israel. How many times does God want to destroy Israel and Moses prays for them and says, don't do it, God? So he prays. He's an intercessor. He's a leader, a deliverer, a preacher, an intercessor. And what did he finally do? Moses was called and sent by God to lead the people to the promised land. Did he actually end up leading them to the promised land? No, Joshua did, but he led them to the brink of the promised land. So, to those Jewish Christians who the writer of Hebrews is writing to, what's their temptation? Their temptation is to elevate Moses above 
Jesus and to fall back to Judaism. Now, for us, that's not our issue. Anybody here, we're going to elevate Moses above Jesus. That's not our issue, is it? Because we're not good Jews who are going to go back to the sacrificial system, are we? But, so I want you to think of it in a different way. It may not be Moses that you're elevating above Jesus. And by the way, is Moses a good thing? Was Moses evil? Well, Moses is a good, good guy, right? What are you elevating above Jesus? Who's your Moses? And it may be a good thing. What are you putting as a good thing above Jesus? For them, it was Moses and the temptation to fall back to the ways of Moses. But Jesus is a better deliverer. Would you agree? He's a better preacher. He's a better intercessor and a better leader than Moses ever was. Now, Back in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses said something very interesting. He gave a prophecy. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses said this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So who's that prophet that's going to be raised up that we need to listen to? How do you know it's Jesus? You just assume it's Jesus. How do you know it's Jesus? How do you know it's not Samuel? How do you know it's not Isaiah or Elijah? I'll give you a hint. In Acts 3.23, when Peter's preaching, he says it's Jesus. Okay. So the New Testament interpretation on that is Jesus has come as the fulfillment. Jesus is this prophesied prophet that's come. And what is Moses telling them? You need to listen to, to Jesus. I'm gone. Moses died. He's gone. Who's the new and better Moses? Jesus. Now, I want you to look at how we are described. Verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. We could spend a lot of time on just our calling. Has God called us out of darkness into light? Has God called us effectually? Yes. But what's the verb there? The ESV says what? Consider Jesus. Does anybody have a different translation? Fix your thoughts. Does anybody else have fix your thoughts? Consider. Think about. It's all the same Greek word. You're, you're all right. What that word really means is that we're going to come across it again in chapter 10, verse 24, and in chapter 12, verse 2, where it says, Fix your eyes on Jesus. Basically, what the, what the writer is telling us, every chapter so far, what's he told us? Keep your gaze on Jesus. Keep your eye on Jesus. Keep your thoughts on Jesus. Think about in, in, in the Olympics, okay? If you were to run the 50-meter dash in the Olympics, you're probably very fast to be in the Olympics in the first place. What's the cardinal rule in track and field that you do not want to do that may take seconds off of your time and make you go from getting a gold medal to a bronze medal? Never look back, never look to the side. What are you supposed to always be looking at? The finish line. Okay? And that's what the writer's saying. Who's the finish line? Jesus. And so we're not to look to the... What's to the right? Judaism. For these people. To the left is the Roman 
pantheon of, of mythical gods. And, and to the original audience, he's saying, listen, if you go to the right, if you look to the right, there's Judaism. It's calling you. It's beckoning you to come back home. To the left, there's the Roman paganism. It's calling you. It's beckoning you. But in the middle, Jesus is right before you. The entire course of your life, you've got to keep your eyes on him. Keep your eyes on the prize, Jesus. Think about, meditate upon, be concerned with. Now, how is Jesus described? Very, very interesting. Verse 1, he's the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, we've already seen him called a high priest last week, but that's weird terminology. He's called an apostle. At first glance, it may sound weird. Because did not Jesus choose the 12 apostles? How could he himself be considered an apostle? It's the only time Jesus is referred to as an apostle. It really comes from a Greek word, apostello. Anybody want to take a guess? To be sent. Jesus was the sent one. This is what it means. The Greek word means the sent one, or one sent on a mission by a king to accomplish work or deliver a message similar to an envoy. Was Jesus sent? In the Gospel of John, the word sent shows up over 40 times. Jesus is sent. I I was sent by the Father. What was the ultimate mission Jesus was sent to do? Just come and hang out and tell some cool stories? <laughs> yeah. What was his mission? To die. And in John seventeen four, right before he dies, in the Garden of Gethsemane, during the high priestly prayer, Jesus says this to his father when he's praying. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. I succeeded in the mission. So Jesus is the sent one. Was Moses a sent one? Yes, but who's greater than Moses? Jesus. Was Moses a priest, sort of? I mean, Aaron was the priest, but Moses actually did a better job than Aaron did. Aaron had that golden calf episode. Okay. Yeah, just a minor detail. So what is Jesus the high priest and apostle of? What does it say there? Verse 1, he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, this word is not so much meaning like our personal testimony, but really the word is the actual body of truth that makes up our belief system. Like when you have a confession of faith, what's the difference between I'm going to confess Jesus before people versus this is our confession of faith? What's the difference between those two terms? One is what I stand up and publicly say. One is a body of truth that makes up what we believe. And the word here is really the body of truth that makes up what we believe. Okay? So what he's going to do here is he's going to make this comparison between Jesus and Moses, and he's going to argue from the lesser to the greater. You guys thought, speaking to his original audience, you guys thought Moses was great. He's awesome. He's your man. He's cool. He brought you the law. I'm paraphrasing. I doubt the writer said Moses was cool. But he's he's using this type of terminology. And what does he say here? Verse 2. Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Moses was a faithful servant. Now, when it talks about God's house, is it talking about a literal house, the temple, the tabernacle? What's it talking about? 
It's talking more about the people. So when, when, when the word house is used here, it's talking more really about the nation, the people of Israel. It's a metaphor for the people or the nation, not the physical structure. Was Moses a servant in the house? Yes. And was he a faithful servant? Did Moses do what God called him to do? Yes. He delivered the law. He led the people. He interceded on behalf of the people. He preached to the people. He was a servant in the house. But notice, where is Moses? He's a servant where? What does it say there? Look at the little preposition. He was faithful where? In God's house. Okay? He was just in God's house. He was only a servant. Did he build God's house? Was he self-appointed? Did he just kind of come out of the mountain and say, I'm the man? Who sent him? Okay, what does it say there? Who's the builder of the house? Jesus is the builder. Is Jesus in, in the house? What does it say? Jesus is what? Look at, look at it carefully. What does it say? Is Jesus in the house or is Jesus... What does your text say? Okay, but he's a faithful servant where? Over. Is there a difference between being over the house and in the house? What is it? Moses was just in the house. I mean, Moses was part of the family. What does it mean that Jesus was over the house? He's above, okay? Moses was just a servant. What does it say Jesus was? Jesus was a a son, a firstborn son who's the heir of all things. So here's the thing. Here's what the writer is saying. Jesus is more glorious, not only... Jesus is more glorious because not only is Jesus faithful over God's house, but he is the builder of the house, Not a servant, but the son, the rightful heir. What's God's house now? Us. So what's God's house? Not the physical structure, but the church. Now, how do I know that? Well, let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22, and let's look at how Paul uses the metaphor. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, So then you, y'all in the Greek, Jamie knows that. <laughs> Nobody else here knows that at Jamie. <laughs> so then y'all are no longer strangers and aliens, but y'all are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord and him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Is Paul talking about a literal house here? He's metaphorically talking about the church being built as God's house, as God's people. Who's the chief cornerstone? Jesus. And Jesus is the builder of the house. Now, here's a fundamental question you've got to ask at this point. Here's the question. Are you part of the house? And what's the, what's, what, how would we, what would be a different way of saying it? Like if I walked up to you and said, Scotty, are you part of the house? What are you talking about? A better question I would say is, Scotty, are you a Christian? That's the same question, right? Are you part of the house? Are you a Christian? Are you part of God's family? And so here's the question. How do 
you make sure that you don't drift away from being in God's family. Because what was the warning earlier? Don't drift. Now, in the second, what? Stay in the word. What did he say already? Keep your eyes fixed on. It's very simple. Okay, it, it's so simple that sometimes we make it so difficult. I'll just get. We could leave tonight. I'll give you the answer. And we can leave. Okay, you get, but we won't do that. Here's the here's the fundamental answer. The most important way to keep from drifting, from sinning, from falling away is to steadily, day by day, keep your heart and mind fixed on Jesus. It's that simple. But is that simple? And how do you do it? Okay, the second, look at verse 6. I want to show this to you because this is going to show up again in verse 14. What does verse 6 say? Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence in our boasting in our hope. Okay, the second half of verse 6 has what we call a conditional sentence. What's a conditional sentence? It starts with a what? If, then. If something happens, then something will happen. And we're going to come across these conditional sentences all throughout the book of Hebrews. Now, I'm going to get into a little bit of Greek here, so... Um, don't get bored or bogged down, okay? In the Greek language, well, let me just, okay, let, let me draw. I wish I could draw this for you. Um, this is getting real technical, so you don't necessarily need to take notes on this, but I think it's important. Okay, so if you have an if, what's the if? If you, what's the verb after that? Hold fast. Does yours all say something like hold fast? Hold firm or hold fast? That Greek word really means to, um, to have a tight grip. Well, let me just put it up here. What does it mean to hold fast? This means to keep a tight grip on the Christian faith and not let it slip away. As we've seen earlier, to keep hold on the anchor and not drift away. Okay. The word if in Greek, there's two different words for if. There's a henna and there's a hain. Don't necessarily know that. But there's different types of conditional sentences in Greek. And after you have a hain, that's Greek, if, and you have a subjunctive verb, you have a subjunctive verb after an if, and this is getting very technical, this is called what we call a third-class conditional statement. And, and here's basically what it means. The conditional is in the realm of probability or possibility. Because if, if by itself assumes what? It may or may not happen, right? If this, then this. Okay? But a third-class conditional statement does this. It says that if this happens... If this happens, then what the result of it will definitely happen. So let's go back to the sentence and let's break it down. 
If you hold fast, then what will definitely happen? Go back up in the sentence. We are his house if indeed we hold fast. So if we hold fast, what will most definitely happen? It will prove out that we were truly a Christian. Now the opposite is true. What's the opposite of that? If you, let's put the word don't in there. If you don't hold fast to the end, what's it going to prove out? That you weren't really a Christian. So you see the warning he's giving here? He's telling them to, you guys have got to hold fast. Because if you don't hold fast to the very end, it will prove out. It will prove out that you never were part of God's house in the first place, meaning you never were truly saved. If you're truly saved, you will hold fast. If you're not truly saved, it will prove out by you not holding fast. Okay? Now, here's the point of using the conditional, if indeed. If indeed. Does your say if indeed? Okay, it's strong in the original language. The writer recognizes this possibility in the church among professing Christians. There could be a type of fleeting or temporary faith that may at first show signs of life, but in the end, it does not persevere and hold tight. (gasps) Could that actually happen among a group of Christians? Just because you publicly identify with the body of Christ and come to church doesn't necessarily mean you're truly saved. Not necessarily. So let's turn to Mark chapter 4. Keep your finger in Hebrews. And let's go to Mark chapter 4. And I want to show you this type of faith that the writer of Hebrews, I think, is very concerned about. I almost, there, there's no way to prove this. This is my opinion. But I think the writer of Hebrews was very, very familiar with Jesus' teachings. And I think this parable in, of the sower in Mark chapter 4 haunted the writer of Hebrews to where he was so concerned that there might be this situation happen. And I think it haunts every preacher. Every pastor, I can tell you that there have been people that I've baptized in this church that a week or two weeks after I baptized them, they've never darkened the doors of this church again. And when I see them out in the community, they are, they are not connected to a church. They have no relationship with God. Okay, and so as a pastor, am I concerned about that? Yes. And so as a pastor, would I want to stand before a congregation and warn people? That's what he's doing here. He's warning because he knows the parable of the soil. So let's look at the parable of the soils. You guys know there's four types of soils. Let's go to Jesus's explanation. Okay, so let's go to uh, chapter four, verse 13. And I'm going to draw this on the board so you guys can see the four soils. Okay. I think sometimes it's helpful to have a visual of these four soils. So, um, one, two, three, four soils, okay? And let's compare them. All right, so, he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? The sower sows the word. Okay, so what is sown? The word. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path. Okay, so um, the first one is the path. Who? The path, 
These are the ones on the path where the word is sown. When they hear, the Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown on them. So what's the result? No belief, right? Is there any sign of belief at all there? Satan immediately comes and takes away the word. Okay. So, so, so soil number one is the soil on the path. What's sown is the word. There's no response. Okay? All right, soil number two. These are the ones sown on the... Now, let me just say something. What's the one consistent in all of the parables or in all the soils? What's the one consistent? The word is sown in all of them. What's the word? It's the word of the gospel. It's the word of truth. The only thing that's different is the type of soil and the result. Okay? So the second type of soil is this. These are the ones sown on... What's the, what's the soil there? Rocky, the rocky ground soil. These are the ones, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they what? Okay, so what's the response here? Immediate joy, right? Some evidence, right? But then a falling away. But did you catch the little hint that Jesus gave in there? What did they not have? Verse 17. They have no, there's no root. Meaning that, I take that to mean they weren't, they weren't fully saved. They weren't truly saved. They heard the word. They got excited about it. They may have gotten, you know, immediately. But then when the pressures of life coming came, they did not endure to the end. They fell away. Okay, what's the next soil? Third soil. The others are the ones sown among thorns. These are those that hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So this one has become choked, chalked, choked. <laughs> There's no fruit, and basically materialism has overtaken them. So up to this point, would you guys say that the first three soils are not Christians? I would probably say they are not true Christians. Now, which one appears to be the most like a Christian? Number two, the rocky ground, because what do they do? They receive it with joy. They get excited. They endure for a while. But what happens? They eventually fall away because they had no root. There's no root here. There's no fruit here. No root, no fruit. No salvation, no evidence of salvation. You see what I'm saying? Okay, what's the last soil? Those that were sown, but verse 20, but those that were sown on the good soil, so good soil, are those who what? Hear it. They accept it. And what do they do? They bear fruit. So what's the huge difference? The word's the same. The message's the same. The soil is different. But what's the one response that actually proves to be true, genuine, saving faith? Those that actually accept it and bear fruit. And why do they bear fruit? Because they had a root. They were truly saved. And so I think what the writer of Hebrews is saying is this. He's talking to the church full of... Do you think in our church today, on a Sunday morning or even in tonight, there's a mixture of all types of these soils? Yes. Now, 
as a good pastor, are you just going to, what if you always just address the good soil? How do you know? I think the writer of Hebrews is really camping out on the second soil saying, listen, there could be a lot of pretenders in the audience that think they're saved and they're not. And if they don't hold fast to the end, it will prove that they weren't saved in the first place. Because what does he say? Let's go back to Hebrews. If you hold fast your confession, your confidence, your boasting, it will prove out that you are indeed God's house. Now, what are we supposed to hold fast to? Back to Hebrews chapter 3. Our confidence and our hope. Now, again, there's kind of this um, sandwich technique here or bookend, okay? How does he start? Keep your eyes on Jesus. What's in the middle of the sandwich? Jesus is better than Moses. What's on the outside of the sandwich? What's the other brunt? What's the big bun? Big bun? How did that come from? The piece of bread. Hold fast. Okay? So do you think these two go in tandem? Keep your eyes on Jesus and holding fast? Do you think they're linked? I think he bookends those two and puts this in the middle as a way for us to keep our eyes on Christ. Okay? Now... What is the danger of not holding fast? We prove we were never part of God's house in the first place. Here's a scary verse. 1 John 2.19 They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have, what's the word there? Continued with us, but they went out that it might be complained that they are all not of us. Now, what's he talking about? In that church, there was a group of people that fell away and left, that did not continue in the faith. Why? They weren't truly Christians. If they were truly Christians, they would have remained. So it's all throughout the Bible, this whole idea of apostasy. So again, what is apostasy? It's a falling away of those who are not truly Christians but pretend. Apostasy is not committed by the heathen in the deep, dark jungles of Africa. Why? They never, they never pretended to be a Christian in the first place. They, they don't have the knowledge. They are living as an unreached people group. That there's, no, there's nobody there that's told them about Christ. Apostasy is only committed by somebody that has first professed faith in Christ and then falls away from it. Not that they lost their salvation, but that they fell away from what they didn't have in the first place. Okay. Now, let's turn to Psalm 95 just for a minute. Keep your hand in Hebrews your finger or your or keep it swiped however you some of you guys are using electronic devices and that's perfectly all right it's still the word of god although not the written word of god it's the computerized word of god i'm just joking so i want to i want to turn to psalm 95 and i want to turn to 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 verse 7 psalm 95 7 Actually, start at verse 6. Psalm 95, 6. Everybody there? 
Psalm 95, 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow. You guys remember that song? Come, let us worship and let us kneel before the Lord our God. I used to love that song. I sang it in youth group all the time. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we're the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Sounds awesome, right? How does it? Today, if you hear his voice, do not what? Harden your hearts as at Meribah on the day at Massah in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, what in the world's going on there? What in the world is he talking about in Psalm 95? This is a rebellion in the wilderness, right? What happened 40 years in the wilderness? What happened there? What happened to the generation that, was, that spent 40 years wandering? What, what was the deal with them? We'll see it in just a moment. They refused in the promised land, and God said, you're going to wander for 40 years and die here. And he swore to them, you will not enter the promised land. I'm pouring out my wrath on you. You're going to die in the wilderness, and you're not going to get to see the promised land. Now, he uses two words in the psalm, Meribah, quarreling, Massah, testing. In other words, this is code word for that disobedient generation who wandered for 40 years in the desert and died because of God's wrath. But I want you to notice the strong language that God uses there. What does he say in verse 10? I loathe that generation. That's a, that's a very rare Hebrew word. It means he hated them. God's wrath was poured out upon that generation. He was angry with them. He was displeased. What did they do? They hardened their hearts. In verse 11, God reminds us that he swore to them. What did he swear to them? I, they will never enter my rest. In other words, a punishment for this generation that did not believe me and hardened their hearts and rebelled against me, my wrath is being poured out upon them by them not being able to enter the promised land. They're going to, they're going to wander for 40 years and just die in the wilderness. Okay. What in the world does Psalm 95 have to do with anything? Go back to Hebrews chapter 7. Because the writer of Hebrews is going to quote it. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 3, back to verse 7. Now, he's going to quote it from what we call the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's oftentimes called the LXX, the 70, um, the Septuagint. It was um, written probably about 100 to 150 years before Jesus. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So that's what he's quoting from here. So when he quotes from the Old Testament, most of his quotations are going to come from the Greek translation of the Old Testament because these are Greek-speaking Hebrews that he's talking to. Okay? So let's read verse 7 and following. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, let's stop right there. I thought David said it in Psalm 95. Why does he say the Holy Spirit said it? Who wrote the Bible? The Bible is inspired by God. So he's just throwing a little hint there. Hey, by the way, just one hint, hint, nudge, nudge. The Old Testament's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Even though David wrote it, David was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Today, if you hear his voice, do not Harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. 
Why in the world does he quote Psalm 95 there? This is a sermon, remember? He's using Psalm 95 as a sermon illustration to to reiterate what he's talking about. He's saying, listen, guys, this is nothing new. You're good Jews, right? And you're holding up Moses, right? Well, guess what Moses had to deal with? That disobedient generation that rebelled against God and they committed apostasy. What had that generation seen? The Red Sea, the manna and the quail, the plagues. And yet they did not go into the promised land because they hardened their heart in rebellion. And God said they fell away. And when you fall away, what do you get? I swore in my wrath they shall never enter my rest. Okay. With that as a background, do not harden your heart. In verse 12, he's going to pick up this issue. So let's read verses 12 through 15. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Like who? That generation I just talked about. Leading you to what? Fall away from the living God. But, strong but there in the original language, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be Harden, do not harden your heart by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What does verse 12 start with? What does your translation say? Take care, pay attention, wake up. There's upcoming hazards, there's pitfalls. Keep your eyes open. But what are they to be careful about? What are they to be careful about? That there not be in any of you a what? Evil. What kind of heart? Okay, an unbelieving heart. What does an evil, unbelieving heart lead to eventually? What does it say there? Look at your text. Leading you, leading you to what? Fall away. So an unbelieving heart leads you to what? Fall away. Okay, let's, let's talk about the play on words that he uses here in the original language. I think I put this on your sheet. The word for unbelieving in the original language is apista. Anytime you put an a in front of a Greek word, it means not or un. Pistus is the, is the Greek word for believing, not believing, unbelieving. The word for falling away is what? Apostasia which in English is what? Apostasy. So do you see how those words look similar? Apista apostasia. Even if you say them out loud, they sound alike, right? He's using a play on words right here to show that you are really in danger if you've got a hardened, unbelieving heart. What's it going to lead to? It's eventually going to lead to apostasy. So don't harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. Instead, what are we to do? Verse 12, 13, what does he say we should do? In sharp contradistinction to having an evil, unbelieving heart, what are we to do? Exhort. What does it mean to exhort? To what? To encourage. Exhort one another. 
It's, it's the word parakaleo, which means to come alongside believers for the purpose of motivating and strengthening them to grow in grace. Here's what exhortation means. Okay, let me show you the difference. All right, I'm not making fun of cheerleaders here. But like when you have cheerleaders on the sideline, you can do it. You can, you know, whatever they do, you can do it. They're like from the sidelines. They're like yelling out these, you can do it from the sidelines. Okay, as a, as a football player, like, okay, it's a cheerleader. She's, she's cheering me on. That's cool. But if you're a football player, what, what motivates you more? Somebody to come down into the trenches with you, lock arms, and let's go to war together. What's going to bring you more encouragement? Somebody that gets down and dirty with you in the fight or somebody on the sidelines saying, do it. Okay, which would you rather have? Somebody from a distance saying, you can do it, or somebody getting down in your life and saying, we can do this together. Okay, exhortation, exhorting is the second one. Exhorting is not on the sidelines saying, I'm going to encourage you, you're great. Exhortation biblically is you get down in someone's life side by side and you walk through the trenches with them. And that's what he says is going to help us not fall away. Now, how many times are we supposed to do it? What does he say there? Verse 13, exhort one another how many times? Every day, as long as it's called. Okay, when's it not going to be called today? Tomorrow. But then what happens when tomorrow it becomes today? So here's a, here's a, hard, here's a really, really strong challenge. When was the last time either you encouraged somebody today or you were encouraged by somebody today? This is the ministry that we are called to as Christians to do in each other's lives. So what does this mean? Exhortation means that we've got to know each other. We've got to be vulnerable in front of each other. We've got to be able to let each other know our needs. We've got to be willing to get in each other's lives. We can't be on the sideline like cheerleaders just kind of like driving by. You can do it. We've got to exhort one another. So I would challenge us as a church, are we doing it daily as long as it's called today? And that doesn't mean that you have to do big, huge acts of exhortation. It could just mean that you are an encouragement in sending a note, a phone call, an email, a text, a kind word, taking somebody out to lunch, praying for them, all different ways, encouraging your children, exhorting your... Just having an attitude of always being an encourager. Okay. Why do we need encouragement? Here's the second Here's the question. Why is the ministry of exhortation so urgent he says it right there he gives the reason why it's so urgent in verse 13 exhort one another every day as long as it's called a day that what's the purpose the result that none of you may be what hardened what was the issue of that generation in the wilderness they hardened their heart Now, what in the world does it mean to have a hardened heart? The word hardened in Greek is sclerino. It was originally used as a medical term to describe the hardened swelling of a bone. But in current medical terminology, we have atherosclerosis. Does anybody know what atherosclerosis is? Sclerosis. You guys know what? Anybody know sclerosis? Scarring? Yes, it is scarring. But what's atherosclerosis? It relates to the heart. So today, hardening of the arteries. 
Okay, so it's Greek. When somebody says you have a hardened heart, you're like, hey, it's in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. <laughs> if you harden your heart, arteriosclerosis, what happens if you have so much bad cholesterol that, that constricts your heart? What does it eventually end, end up in? A heart attack that eventually ends, you, ends up in death if you're not careful. Okay? So spiritually speaking, what happens if you have clogged heart full of unbelieving sin and it goes on for a long time? You have a hardening of the heart and what does it eventually end up in? A spiritual heart attack and death. And that's why we need exhortation. We need exhortation. No Christian was ever designed to live life in a vacuum by themselves in isolation. Let's just, say, let's just be real honest. The Christian life is too hard to live by yourself. We would commit all manner of sin left to ourselves. That's why we need exhortation. That's why we need encouragement. Because if not, we will be hardened. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 4. He uses a similar word, but I think it's, it's the same concept. In Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. What's a callous? When you get a callous, what's a callous? Those of you that work outside, what's a callous? It mean, you know, I've got calluses. It's something that over time, it just keeps getting raw and raw and raw. Eventually, you don't feel it anymore, do you? And you don't even know it's there. Do most of you that have calluses even realize them anymore? But it's hardened. And that's what can happen to your heart if you're not careful. It can become calloused. It can become hardened. And so this word calloused is very similar to the word hardened in the original language. It means to be really insensitive to pain, insensitive to God's... It means you become desensitized to sin. You're no longer bothered by sin. You're no longer shocked. That's why we pray. That's why we pray. pray. Exactly. Yeah, we should pray for soft hearts. And, that's, and I, think I'm, I think I've got that at the end, but hold that thought. No, that's good. No, I think it's good to bring it up now. We can't produce... We can't produce the soft heart in and of ourselves, but God can do it through His Holy Spirit. But we've got to pray and ask God to keep, to keep our hearts soft before Him. Now, here's the interest. Here, here, here's, the, here's the issue of this text, this verse. What actually causes us to be hardened? Did you notice the way He describes it? Look at the entire verse. Exhort one another every day. You've got to exhort each other. You've got to do it every day. Because there's a danger that you're going to be hardened. And what, what are you going to be hardened by? Does it just say sin? The what? The deceitfulness of sin. Now that's an interesting phrase. The answer lies in the deceitfulness of sin. So let me ask you a question. Is sin deceitful? Why is sin deceitful? Well, let's see how sin first started. What did Satan tempt Eve with? Why was it so deceiving? Genesis 3, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say? Questioning God's word. You shall not have eaten of any tree in the garden. That's not true. Did not God, God didn't say that, did he? That's a bold-faced lie. God said you may eat of any tree in the garden except for one. 
So he's lying to Eve. And what's he, what's he casting it down on? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden. God said, you shall not eat of the tree, fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Here's the, here's the deceitfulness, See, Eve. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Do you see the deception there? Eve, number one, God's not good because he's withheld things from you. And number two, you can be like God. And that's straight from the devil, which Jesus says in John 8, 44, you are up talking to the Pharisees. How would you love to be a Pharisee during Jesus' time? You are of your father, the, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So here's why sin is deceitful. And here's how Satan used that to bait Eve and how it baits us. Sin can be so devious because it presents to us a lie that God's word cannot be trusted and that there must be some better alternative than to obey him. Is that a lie? Now, what do we know as a Christian? God's word is good. It's to be trusted. But what do we want to believe? How does sin deceive us on that level? Sin comes to us and says, yeah, but there's something better over here besides obeying God in this situation. Or it may do this. The reason why sin is so deceiving is because it falsely promises immediate yet temporary pleasure but no real lasting joy. It promises the thrill of cheap substitutes instead of the lasting satisfaction that comes in faith in Christ. Would you agree? Sin promises, what's the word there? Does sin promise pleasure? You betcha. Is it immediate sometimes? Is it temporary? Is it lasting joy? What's the only source of lasting joy? Jesus. But sin's going to come alongside and lie to you and say, listen, this immediate pleasure you're going to receive from this sin is better than persevering and holding on to Christ. So give in to it. And if you believe that lie and give in to it over and over again, what's going to happen to your heart? It's going to get hardened. And eventually, if your heart gets hardened, it's going to turn into an unbelieving heart. And an unbelieving heart eventually turns into what? Falling away. So we need the ministry of encouragement, exhortation, so that we are encouraged. Now look at verse 14, because it's almost exactly like verse 6 with that conditional if sentence. What does he say? For we have come to share in Christ. What's the, okay, earlier up in verse 6, it was what? You've come to be part of God's house. This is just a different way of saying it. You have come to share in Christ. What does it mean to share in Christ? That describes a Christian, right? A non-Christian doesn't share in Christ, have a relationship with Christ. You've come to share with Christ if indeed you what? Same Greek word. Hold our original confidence firm. How long? To the end. To the end. Okay? Now, the word confidence here is a different Greek word than it was used up in verse 6. The word confidence here really means the ground, 
the basis, the foundation, that which undergirds your conviction and gives the basis for your faith. So the writer is basically saying the same thing, just in a different way. He's using that third clash conditional statement, basically saying this. If you hold fast to the end, it will prove out that you truly share in Christ. Opposite is true. If you do not hold fast to the end, it proves that you never did begin to share with Christ in the first place. Okay? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the, what's the key word there? Rebellion. Go back and count up how many times the word rebellion shows up. Look at verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, um, you go down to verse 15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Verse 16. For when those who heard and yet, what? Rebelled. Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of what? Unbelief. What's the warning he gives back up in verse 12? Take care that you do not have an evil, unbelieving heart. To truly understand this, he gives a sermon illustration in, in real capsulated form back in Numbers chapter 14. So let's turn back to Numbers chapter 14. In Numbers 13, I'll just give you the synopsis of Numbers 13. Moses commissions the 12 spies to go in and spy out the promised land. If you remember the story, uh, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's awesome. It's powerful. They're excited. But then at the very end, what do they see? Giants in the land. We're like grasshoppers. They came back and gave a bad report and said, we can't do it. We can't do it. And Joshua and Caleb, the two said, yeah, we can because God's on our side. So let's pick up. That was their opportunity to what? That generation's opportunity to obey God and do what? Enter his rest. Okay, so here's the thing. Believe, it's very simple. What? Believe God and you get to enter his rest or enter the promised land. Opposite's true. Rebel against God and what? I swear in my wrath you will die in the wilderness. So let's see this unfold in Numbers chapter 14. So let's look at verses 1 through 10. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled. I want you to count how many times the word grumble shows up. It's a key word. Actually, it shows up five, but we'll just. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? No. What was Egypt? Slavery. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. I'm going to, def- I'm going to defy God by choosing a different man, not Moses, and I'm not going to go the problem. I'm going to defy the, the leader in the land. I'm not going to obey God's leader, Moses. I'm not going to go into God's land. And ultimately, I'm disobeying the Lord. I'm disobeying the Lord, the leader in the land, by wanting to get a new leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation. 
of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not, what does your Bible say? Rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred to us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Now, what do you expect to happen? Okay, yeah, we understand. Great word, Joshua. Verse 10, Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I've done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. The key word here is grumble. Shows up five times. God had taken care of their every need, had he not? What was Egypt? Harsh taskmasters and slavery. What had God done for them? He, he, he gave them the Passover. He delivered them through the Red Sea. He gave them manna every day. I'm getting sick of this white stuff. Did they have to go work for the manna? Manna and quail every day. God had given them everything. And here's the issue in verse 9. What does Joshua say to them? Do not rebel against the Lord. Joshua's words are an act of grace by the living God to his people to listen and not rebel. And yet they want to stone him. That's pretty strong rebellion, don't you think? That's not a casual, hey, we just don't want to listen to you. That's a, my heart is so hard and so mad at God that I'm willing to kill you with stones because you are telling me the word of the Lord. And they would have stoned him if not God had shown up at the temple, right? With all of his glory, the people are like, whoa, we better back off. Now think about that. Just think about that for a minute. The glory of the Lord shone at the temple and they still wanted to rebel. You'd think at that point they'd be like, okay, we're on our faces, we're repenting. God, you're God, and, and, you, and you've shown up in all of your glory at the temple. But when you get to a point where your heart is so hard and you've dug in your hills so deep and you've rebelled, as we'll see in Hebrews chapter 6, there's no turning back. Now, I don't know when that point is. Only God does. So this is a warning. Let's keep reading the story. In verse 11... What do we find out? We just read it. We find out a key word that's used in this entire narrative to illustrate how the people have rebelled against God. God asks, how long will these people what? Despise me, hate me. These people despise God. They rebel against God. They're unbelieving God. Isaiah 1.4 says this, Awe sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel, and they are utterly estranged. So, this is not some half-hearted, casual ignorance of God's law. This is a settled 
intense, hateful rebellion of the living God expressed by the people in violence against leadership. Now, what happens next is interesting. And you see it time and time again with Moses. He emerges as the loving mediator between the rebellious people and the Holy One of Israel. So let's read verse 13. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now please... Let the power of the Lord be great as you promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt until now. In verse 18, Moses echoes, what God had revealed back to him in Exodus 34 when he put him in the cleft of the rock. Lord, what's Moses' concern? He appeals to God's mercy and says, God, you're you're a merciful God. You're a patient God. You're a loving God. If you don't let us get into the promised land, your reputation is on the line. The the nations are going to think you're not able to do this. So please, God, don't kill this people. Moses is a mediator. But what does it say there in verse 18? Is God slow to anger? Yes. Is God abounding in steadfast love? Yes. Does God forgive iniquity? Yes. But he will by no means clear the guilty. If there's no repentance, is he going to clear the guilty? No. Here's what happens next. God does pardon them, in a sense, by not executing immediate judgment on them. But sadly, they do experience the wrath of God, not being able to enter the promised land, and will have to die in the desert, the desert, the desert, as the generation known for their outright rebellion. That's a really bad typo. As the generation known for their outright rebellion and disobedience. Verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land I swore to give to their fathers and none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he is a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land in which he went and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. And God goes on to basically pronounce judgment upon them and say, basically, verse, you know, he said, they've despised me, verse 23. Uh, the Lord repeats the term despised. They've utterly rejected him. Um, again, we see the repeti- repetition of the word grumble, where God punishes them with 40 years of wandering. They'll suffer for their, unfaith- their, their unfaithfulness and die in the wilderness God's response is one of wrath. So God says, listen, it's very clear. You believe in me, you enter the promised land. You enter my rest. 
You rebel, you despise, you harden your heart, you obstinately fall away, you die in the wilderness. That's the Old Testament story. Now, let's see how it ends for him. This is crazy. Look at verse 39. God, basically Moses says to them, you guys are going to die in the wilderness. You're, going to be, you're not going to get to enter the promised land. Sorry, too late. You're, you're going to experience God's wrath. Look at verse 39. When Moses told the words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. We're sad. We're not going to get to see, we, we've been wandering. We, we've been released from Egyptian slavery. We're not going to get to see the promised land. So what are we going to do about it? Well, they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country saying, here we are. We will go up to the place the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you've turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. Do you see what they're doing here? Wah, wah, God's not going to let us get in. Let's go do it ourselves. So they presumed, what does it say there? They presumed to go, to go take the land. But who was not with them? The Ark of the Covenant and Moses, meaning God had said, you're done. You want to go take the land? Go take the land. I gave you an opportunity back here to take the land. Believe in me, you did not take that opportunity. You rebelled. You want to go take the land? See how that works for you. I'm not with you. The Ark of the Covenant is not with you. Moses is not with you. And what happens to them? They get routed and turn tail and run and die in the wilderness after 40 years. That's the sermon illustration that the writer of Hebrews is using here to hammer home to these Jews that knew this history well to be, listen, guys, this has happened in your history. Don't repeat it. Don't do what that generation did. Don't rebel. Don't harden your heart. Don't be giving in to the deceitfulness of sin. Hold fast to the end. Don't elevate Moses over Jesus. Persevere. Then if you do, you will enter the rest. And what's the rest? Is it the promised land or is it it's heaven? Okay. So, what I want to do is go back to Hebrews chapter 3 as we bring this to somewhat of a close. What key words showed up in the Old Testament that we've just looked at? We looked at Psalm 95 and we've looked at Numbers chapter 14. What key words showed up in the Old Testament that the writer of Hebrews specifically keys on in and quoting Psalm 95 and referring to Numbers 13 and 14? Okay, so let's go back to Hebrews. In verse 8, what word does he use? Do not rebel. The day of testing associated with the hard heart. In verse 10, what does he say? Your hearts always go you go astray in your heart, to have an astray heart. In verse 12, what does he say? 
an evil, unbelieving heart. In verse 13, hardened by sin. In verse 18, disobedient. In verse 19, unbelief. Okay, if you circle all those words on your sheet, what are the words? Rebellion, unbelieving heart, hardened heart, disbelief, unbelief, straying heart. Those are all metaphors for the word apostasy. Those are all terms for apostasy, falling away. So let's get to a definition here. What is apostasy? This is a definition. It is the hardened, rebellious, disobedient, prolonged unbelief that leads to falling away from the gospel. Now, there are a few things we need to clarify to make this definition more precise, okay? Because you may have some questions about that definition. Let's look at three things that we need to clarify. Number one, apostasy does not mean that one loses his or her salvation. Instead, it means that one never had it in the first place and it was proved out over time. Okay? Number two, clarification. Apostasy is not the committing of one particular sin like adultery, theft, or murder, but the prolonged, habitual, hardened, stubborn unbelief of rebellion against God as an entire lifestyle. Let me just ask you a question. We've looked at David on Sunday mornings. Was David an apostate? No. Did David commit murder? Did David commit thievery? Stealing, lying, adultery. Did God forgive him? Yes. Did he live a prolonged life of habitual, hardened unbelief against God? No. He was a man after God's own heart. So apostasy, we sometimes think, you know, there's that one sin. You know, it's homosexuality, it's divorce, it's murder. There's that one sin that's going to, it's not a one particular, apostasy is not committing one particular sin. It is a prolonged lifestyle, the totality of who you are, that's become so hardened, so stubborn, so unbelieving that just like that nation that wanted to stone Joshua when when you hear the word of God. It'd be like this. You're a stony ground here. You heard the word. You got excited. You got baptized. You went to youth group. You went to every time the doors were open at church, you were there and you were learning and you were excited and you gave your testimony. And then 10 years later, you are living totally opposite of anything that you professed. And a Christian comes to you and begins to share the gospel and such hatred wells up in you that you want to stone them in your heart because you're so angry and you want nothing to do with God. That's apostasy. Now, did that person lose their salvation? Or did they never have it in the first place? Okay? Let's look at the third one. And this is where it gets scary. The final destiny of one who falls away is not entering God's eternal rest in heaven, heaven, but suffering eternal conscious torment in hell. What does he say? I swore to that generation they would never enter my rest. If you rebel, 
you won't enter my rest. If you, rebel, if you believe in God, you will enter the rest. If you rebel against God, you will die in the wilderness. Spiritually, if you believe in Christ, you'll enter heaven. If you rebel and despise Christ, you will die in hell. The wilderness, the spiritual wilderness, not the spiritual promised land. So here's the question we've got to ask. Why is the writer of Hebrews so urgent in his warning against apostasy? Is it a reality that we face? Are you more concerned about it tonight than you were when you walked in? Maybe not for yourself, but maybe for people that you know. Do you think you have to be urgent in talking about apostasy? Can, can you be flippant and talk about apostasy? Can you be flippant? Can you be casual? He's a good pastor. He cares about these people and he wants to warn them. Listen, he loves them so much. He's like, I don't want you to be one that falls away. So here's the question, the final question of tonight. And maybe you're under conviction. I don't know. How do we make sure we're not apostate? How do you make sure that you're not falling away, that you're truly saved and you're walking with Christ? Well, I've got five things for us to think about tonight. And I think this is the way he starts the chapter. We keep on continually considering and looking to Christ as our greatest joy. We're going to see that over and over again in Hebrews. Look to Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Find in Christ your ultimate joy. And notice what I said there. Continually. Keep on continually. It's, it's an ongoing posture of the heart and eyes and mind to be always looking at Jesus. Finding joy in Jesus. Considering Jesus. Number two. We hold fast our confession to the end. This deals with our theology and our doctrine in the body of truth. We hold fast to, to sound doctrine. We don't get off the rails into some weird stuff. We, we hold fast to that confession to the very end. Now, is that going to be harder in the days to come? What's the world telling us about our confession? It's not politically correct. It's bigoted. It's narrow-minded. And what's that going to be? I will tell you this. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. I'm a pastor and a son of a pastor. We will see in the next five to ten years a major apostasy in America. People you thought were Christians, famous people you thought were Christians, famous pastors that have television ministries and people will fall away because it's going to be too hard to hold fast the confession to the end because the culture is going to say your confession, your belief is bigoted, it's narrow-minded, and what are people going to say? I'd rather just go with the culture than to hold fast. And it's going to prove out. Number three, how do we make sure we're not apostate? And I, I kind of hammered on this earlier. We exhort one another every day to receive encouragement to stay the course. We've got to really, really encourage one another every day. Number four, we learn from the dreadful disobedience of Israel, how easy it is to fall away in light of God's grace. Those Old Testament stories are there for a purpose. When you look at the nation of Israel, when you look at Psalm 95, you, you go back and look at that as an example of a nation that had it all, but yet they rebelled against God and died. And then this is what, Carolyn, you were talking about earlier. Number five, we constantly ask God to keep our hearts soft towards him. We don't want to have hard hearts. We want to have soft hearts. And that comes in just a daily, I think number one and number five kind of go together. 
Because I think the more that you see Christ, the more that your heart gets soft. And the more that your heart gets soft, the more you want to see Christ. And so we've just got to daily be in that posture to say, I just want my heart daily, Lord Jesus. I want my heart to be soft towards you. I want my heart to be soft towards the things of you. I want to be holding fast to my confession. How can I be an encouragement to someone today? How can I keep looking to you today? How do I keep myself on the word? Um, It's very simple, isn't it? Look to Jesus, stay in the word, pray, and hold yourself accountable to other encouraging Christians. I mean, that's really what, it's not mystical. It's not like some guy on TV stands up and says, I've got the secret to the Christian life. If you just sow your seed into my ministry, I will tell you, or you buy my book, I will tell you what the secret is. Is it a secret? It's actually pretty simple, isn't it? Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Read your Bible. Pray. Ask God to give you a soft heart and stay around Christian encouragement constantly as a lifestyle. That's that's it. That's not dramatic. That's not earth-shattering. That's not going to sell major books. It may not sell major books, but it will keep you from falling away. 